0: and welcome to another episode of family law and lattes it's been a year since i launched the podcast with our first guest roxanne riser covering brexit and family law since then i've had 19 other brilliant guests covering all manner of topics from applying for non-molestation orders to divorce coaches to how the australians do family law i've got lots more topics planned for year two of the podcast so stay tuned my 21st guest is sir james munby previous president of the Family Division, retired judge, and family lawyer. In this episode, I've taken advantage of having Sir James to hand to discuss a whole raft of family law-related matters and to seek his thoughts and guidance. We cover transparency in the courts, privatization of family law, HMCTS and technology, amongst other things. It's a long episode, so I've split it into two parts, an interview to be enjoyed over two coffee breaks. Hello, Sir James. Welcome to Family Law and Lattes. Good morning. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, I am super excited to be speaking to you today. Uh, Normally, this podcast goes one of two ways. I either have somebody coming to tell us about a change in the law or how to run a specific case, for example, updates in Brexit, or how to do a normal station order application, or I will have a family law professional who is not a lawyer who works with the lawyers in the family law world, divorce coaches, financial advisors, or whatever, to come and talk about what they're doing or an innovative way of working or an app or something. But today we're doing it differently and I've got Sir James Bumby on the phone. So this is absolutely super exciting. We are going to be asking questions about the family law landscape Um, what's happening, what's changing, what your views are. And my aim is to get our listeners to look at things in a different way and to consider the changes. So I'd like to start by asking you some warm-up questions, if possible. And the first one is, uh, who are you and what is your background?
1: Well, my name is James Munby. Uh, I was called to the bar in 1971 Uh, and practiced as a barrister for many years. I took silk in 1988. I became a judge in 2000 in the family division, and I ended my career when I retired in 2018 as the president of the family division. I should make clear that although I spent my judicial life uh, as a family judge, family law is something I came to fairly late on uh, during my time at the bar. So my legal professional experience is wide-ranging across uh, all areas of family and civil law.
0: So why did you end up in family then? What what brought you to family law?
1: Well, it was the chance. I mean, in those days, um, barristers' careers were not so sort of planned and organised in the way they are today. Uh, one one practice developed and often moved in the uh, unforeseen directions. Okay. I became well, yeah, a family that, lawyer. I guess now
0: we are.
1: I became a family lawyer in a sense because uh, I did a lot of work for the official solicitor initially in his oh. civil uh, work and then subsequently mm-hmm. in family work. That gave me the introduction to family law. Um, and when it became time for me to become a judge, the then Lord chancellor decided that uh, he would wish me to sit in the family division rather than the chancery division. That was um, something I was very happy with, and I never regretted the fact that I ended up in the family division rather than the chancery division.
0: Did you always want to be a judge, or was it something that was a natural progression or an opportunity that arose? How did it happen?
1: This may sound rather complacent and arrogant, but I'd always rather assumed that uh, that if I was successful as a bar at the bar, as I obviously hoped to be, uh, I would end up as a judge, um, and uh, so it came to pass.
0: Did you miss practising as a barrister, or was it just the natural progression and therefore just as enjoyable?
1: It was the one thing that made me pause when the Lord Chancellor made the offer to me as to whether I had missed the bar. In fact, I discovered to my relief that I didn't miss the bar at all. Um, and within a surprisingly short period of time, um, I felt that my career at the bar was ancient history and that I'd been a judge for a very long time, um, even though I didn't been a judge for two or three weeks.
0: That, that's always brilliant. Like, yeah, I don't even want to think about the past. It doesn't, doesn't matter. This is just as good, if not better. Mm. I like that. Um Am I correct in thinking that you have come back temporarily to judging recently?
1: I did do, I I, I, I don't do it any any longer, but I did for a brief time after I retired. I continued sitting as a part-time judge in retirement, but um, I finished And
0: that. how did you find doing that? Was it very different or was it just same old, same old?
1: Well, it was... Quite a lot of it was quite different because some of it took place during the uh, COVID epidemic, and therefore a lot of it was remote hearings. Um, Mm -hmm. But it didn't feel any different. Okay.
0: Uh, Because that's what I was wondering is, you know, if you suddenly appeared and it's COVID and it's a completely different way. But I guess, yeah, it's just the same work, just different ways of doing it. All right. I would like to start asking you the questions that are more difficult, let's say. Um, The first one is something that I've discussed with a lot of my uh, fellow family lawyers recently, and it's regarding practice directions and court procedures, specifically in regards to financial remedies. Um, We recently have been told to provide efficiency statements. Uh, Well, through the efficiency statements, provided uh, more work where has to be done um, when dealing with financial remedies matters. So, efficiency statements requires us to complete extra documents, uh, do things by a certain time, etc. And many lawyers are worried about the increase in work that has to be done to do this. Some are worried that when there are lawyers on both sides, this is going to mean increase in correspondence, uh, which increases legal costs where there is only one party represented. They're worried that that party will be uh, forced to pay all the costs because the litigant in person won't be doing the majority of the work. Granted, we need the rules to ensure efficient running of cases and to support the court. But I'm wondering whether we should instead be looking at simplifying the practice directions to decrease the legal costs for represented parties and to make the process more accessible to litigants in person. Do you think this is the way forward, or do you think, no, no, we need more of these um, front-loading onto solicitors or onto the the represented parties to get things done?
1: Well, I think there are two issues wrapped up in this. The first is, are the current requirements unduly onerous so far as concerns the lawyers in cases where they appear. Um, My emphatic answer to that is no. Um, We need these efficiency statements. We need things like the bundles-backs direction precisely to make the proceedings uh, uh, more efficient. And ultimately, it saves costs. You're absolutely right that the effect of this is to front load the costs. But front loading the costs in a contested case ultimately leads to a reduction in expenditure. Mm. And for those of us with long memories, um, it is hard to recall just how terrible things were when I became a judge in 2000, when there were no efficiency statements, no bundles, facts, directions, no nothing of any sort at all. And one had vast bundles containing huge amounts of unnecessary material which somehow one was supposed to manage. Um, and um, I've got to be blunt about this. One of the reasons why some of these practice directions and documents like the efficiency statement are as detailed and complex as they are is because in the light of bitter experience, we discovered um, that lawyers took points, so well, we weren't required to do this by the existing direction, um, and that uh, to meet that kind of reaction, um, we had to tighten it up. So um, Mm. uh, it seems to me that this is absolutely essential, uh, not least bearing in mind the way in which the courts now operate, um, which is on the basis of the judge in every case having pre-read the bundle. So one can plunge straight into the case and that cannot be done um, unless these essential steps are taken. Um, Of course it increases the costs. I mean, if... Uh, the assistant solicitor has to uh, do the bundle rather than simply asking the office junior to copy the entire uh, file. That is going to cost (laughs) money, but it's going to save money down the line. That's true. The other aspect is accessibility uh, to living in person. Here we have a major, major problem. Uh, All this material, and I include not just the kind of documents you've mentioned, but also the rules themselves, the statutes, um, and the practice directions, are drafted by lawyers in legal English, uh, which is almost incomprehensible to even the intelligent, educated layman. And we Mm. have been very remiss in failing to recognize that increasingly, in uh, the family courts, uh, they are a lawyer-free zone, with increasing numbers of litigants in person who simply cannot be expected to understand the incomprehensible language in which these documents are drafted. And much more needs to be done uh, to provide user-friendly versions of all this material written in plain English. And plain English is not what lawyers think is plain English, I'm afraid.
0: No, definitely not. No, that that is... a. Uh the whole litigants in person accessing the courts, it is so difficult. I, I assist on a project for, for, um, uh, advice now their guides and, uh, just when the clients come and see me just to ask, how do they complete forms or what are they supposed to be doing for court? And it seems so basic for me, but so complicated for them. Um, and yes, it needs to be simplified, which is why I'm thinking, you know, should we be looking at more simplified practice directions? But at the same time, we are sharing this of lawyers who like to overcomplicate things and do as little work as possible.
1: I mean, one thing, of course, which ought to be um, the, the result of modern technology Modern IT is precisely making the process more user-friendly uh, for mm. the LIP. I mean, if one has instead of an online paper form, if one has instead of a paper form, an online questionnaire with a sequence of questions, um, where you can't proceed to box two until you filled in box one, where a little light comes up and says you've got it wrong if you fill in box one in incorrectly, the process of understanding the rules is actually subsumed um, into the uh, software uh, behind the IT program. And the LIP can simply be guided through the process by, f- by filling up an online electronic form uh, rather than by being expected to um, understand the rules or, or fill up an old-fashioned paper form.
0: Well, actually, this leads on to one of my other questions, which is about the courts and technology. Um, Because I I attended a conference a few years ago hosted by HMCTS about online courts. And they had speakers and delegates from all over the world attending to share ideas and discuss how they were doing things there. So uh, we had uh, countrywide case management systems like in China were being proposed, uh, fully Um, online processes with hearings and judges being remote, such as in certain parts of Canada. Um, We discussed the possibility of um, artificial intelligent judges taking over decision-making processes, a a whole bunch of stuff being discussed. Obviously COVID has sped up HMCCS's plan for CVP. We already have online case management systems for public children law. You've just talked about completing forms online, filing documents online, et cetera. Um, what are your thoughts on where HMCTS is right now in regards to technology? And do you have views on whether we should be moving to fully remote cases from start to finish with no in-person hearings? Or are you a bit back to the you know hybrid or in-person system?
1: Well, I think one of the tragedies of the last 20 years of the justice system is how very slow we have been. And I don't criticize HMCTS for this. It's the lack of funding and drive from successive governments in actually engaging with modern technology. And uh, down the years uh, when I was a judge, I sat on endless committees where we watched and saw and had demonstrations very much the sort you've been describing. And my attitude was often of shame that here we are, Singapore is doing this, Uh, Ruritania is doing this. China is about to do this. Why are we still lumbering along in our Dickensian world? Mm. Uh, And uh, the uh, effort to modernize the IT uh, driven by the late Sir Henry Brooke at the turn of the millennium uh, ran into the sand when Mr. Blair's government pulled the plug on the funding The court modernization program, which was launched with tremendous fanfares in, I think, 2016, was supposed to get a grip on all this. And that, for all sorts of reasons, turned out to be very disappointing. I mean, one of the impacts of COVID has been that we have been forced uh, to grapple with new technologies. And that, I suspect, has had the advantage It's unattractive using such a word about such a terrible thing. But it has had the advantage of forcing us in the court system to grapple with uh, the need for and the possibilities of new technology. But the fact is, in terms of the kind of online court, in terms of the kind of um, online uh, processes which were being heralded when the modernization program was launched in 2016, we are a very long way, even now, from being there. And I become increasingly sceptical as, as to whether we will ever get there. I mean, bringing one's um, horizons slightly uh, uh, less optimistically, uh, I think one of the great uh, benefits we will derive from the experience over the pandemic has been in taking a more balanced and sensible view about the extent to which we can and can't, should or shouldn't hear cases remotely. Mm. There was tremendous opposition to the very concept of remote hearings uh, before the pandemic. Um, and uh, I hope we are in a position now where we recognize that we, it is not an option simply to say we will go back as soon as we can to where we were before the pandemic hit us. Um uh, one of the advantages, one of the consequences of the experience we've been through over the last couple of years is that we're now adopting a much more nuanced approach to which kind of cases, which kind of hearings should and which should not be heard remotely. And I think that is a very important debate, and I have no, uh, no doubt at all in my own mind Many more hearings will continue indefinitely to be heard remotely, dealt with remotely than was the case pre-pandemic. Certainly as far as concerns family cases, I very much doubt that we'll get to a position where we have cases which are dealt with remotely from beginning to end. Um, I think we need to have a much more sensitive and nuanced approach to this. Identifying which steps, which phases, in which kind of cases uh, can sensibly be dealt with remotely uh, and those which can't. And, um, there's no point in adopting the sort of broad brush approach. Care cases shouldn't be remote. (laughs) Financial cases should be remote. Um, we need to identify which bits of care cases, which bits of financial remedy cases should uh, or should not be remote. I think there's one very important aspect of this, which shamefully the system uh, didn't really engage with at all pre-pandemic, were the views of and the impact on uh, litigants in person of remote hearings. And um, there will be many types of case, many types of hearing, where if you ask a litigant in person or indeed the litigant in the represented case, Would you prefer this to be in court or would you prefer it to be dealt with remotely? The answer would be uh, remotely, please. Mm. Um, Yeah, definitely. I mean, take a uh, fairly straightforward application for directions or case management hearing in a fairly straightforward private law case or financial remedy case. Uh, Why should somebody who lives in the countryside uh, 30 miles from the local family court where the public transport is appalling, um, be expected to go to court for a half-hour hearing Uh, if they can simply, if they wish to, uh, plug in their laptop and sit in their kitchen. Yeah. Uh, And I think we need to be much more sensitive to the wishes and feelings and legitimate requirements of LIPs than we have been hitherto. Ultimately, of course... And is that something... Ultimately, of course, the decision has to be for the judge in a particular case to make the decision as to whether a particular hearing should or should not be removed. But a very important factor which has to be fed into the balance are the legitimate wishes and feelings and requirements of the individuals involved, particularly if they're LIPs.
0: Do you think the judiciary, particularly in the family law world, is leaning one way or another? Do you think they're thinking, well, we need to be looking at being more hybrid, working with what's best for the court users? Or is the worry of, we want to make sure that we see everybody because we feel that that's the best way to to s- serve them better, is to have them in front of us to help them? Or is it that people just are not sure?
1: I think professionals, including judges, are more open-minded about this in the light of their experiences over the last uh, couple of years. Um, There is still a view that um, we need to see, as it were, the whites of their eyes in court. Mm. That may well be the right approach uh, to uh, final hearings um, in anything other than the most trivial cases. Um, I don't myself believe uh, it is a sensible approach if one is dealing with a fairly routine uh, directions hearing. But there again, one's got to be nuanced about this. The uh, initial case management hearing in a care case is absolutely vital. And that in my book has got to be, um, as soon as possible, back to an old-fashioned hearing with everybody in court. Um, that is one of the reasons why I say one's not been uh, more subtle and nuanced about this than we have been hitherto. Um, I think we are in a much better place on this, paradoxically, because of the pandemic. And I think judges and indeed the professions—I and I stress that because in many ways I think the judges were ahead of the professions in this—do now recognise one has to have a much more uh, open approach to this, which will inevitably lead to a significant, a very significant increase in the number of either fully remote hearings uh, or hybrid hearings.
0: That makes sense. I Yeah. Okay. Well, I in my experience, I have to say a lot of the judges I've come across have been very open to um, working remotely. Just to make sure that they can get that hearing done and they can be progressing their cases and seeing everybody that needs to be seen, just because of the difficulties of getting people um, in front of them in some circumstances. Um, but this does make me think of another question I was going to ask, which is uh, the smooth running of the courts. It's been a problem in the making for many years with. Um, pandemic making things work. Not enough judges. Not enough court staff. Not enough funding to keep the courts working the way we we, we need them to be working. And bearing in mind that we're coming out of this COVID situation, supposedly, so does the government. Um, what are the three things that you think um, family law professionals using the courts should be doing to help the judges on their matter? Um, and that can be anything that you think, no matter how big or small.
1: Well, I think looking at the big strategic picture, family law professionals need to be much more receptive to the idea that things can and must be done more efficiently uh, and better than they have been in the past. I mean, lawyers tend to be conservative people with a small C. And they've grown up uh, being taught this is the way we do it. Uh, And therefore, most family law professionals, like most legal professionals, uh, tend to have a rather negative view uh, about the need for reform and change. Um, And uh, the the reality is we cannot go on as we have hitherto. We have got to embrace new technologies. We've got to embrace new ways of doing things. Um, And... uh, In particular, in family law, um, just to take a small but important example, I think the concept of unbundled legal services, uh, Mm. which was spearheaded by the Law Society, was a very good example uh, of the need to think out of the box and work in a different way. Uh, Another important example in the context of family law, particularly uh, financial remedy work, is the recognition by the judges and indeed by the professions that it is no longer professionally impossible for one person to act uh, for both parties at certain stages uh, of a Mm -hmm. case. Um, And that, I think, is something which 40 years ago would have been thought heretical. And it is now recognized that uh, the rigorous implementation of that principle uh, can, in certain circumstances, Uh, Damage work to the disadvantage of litigants in person and others. Uh, For example, uh, if uh, litigants in person um, have, with the benefit uh, of assistance, for example, mediation, uh, come to a solution, and all they require is for their agreement to be knocked into legal shape, why should they be required to employ two solicitors to do that when? Uh, It seems to me one can perfectly adequately do the technical uh, but important job of turning their layman's agreement into proper legal shape. So that's the first thing. Um, I think focusing more uh, on the day-to-day, the key thing which family family law professionals have to do is to recognize that judges are immensely overburdened, that the throughput of cases uh, bef- before the judges is vastly greater than it was even when I became a judge 20 years ago. Um, and that it is absolutely vital if, if that throughput is be maintained, that they come to court properly prepared, um, having a, complied with the practice directions, complied with the efficiency statements, and so on and so forth, so that having done so, the judge can go straight to the heart of the case without uh, wasting inordinate amounts of time, what are you, uh, euphemistically called, housekeeping matters. Yeah. Um, and then for those who are actually appearing in court uh, on their feet in front of the judges, um the best thing they can do is to be completely on top of the case, fully prepared, know exactly what it is they want and why it is they want it, um, and be sufficiently prepared that if the judge asks some question, they know what the answer is um, and can the case can then move smoothly forward. I mean, nothing is more disconcerting to a judge. Nothing is more damaging to the standing of a professional person in court if when the judge asks some fairly straightforward and obvious question, um, nobody in court knows the answer. Mm. I've yeah, sat in on hearings indeed,
0: where I've seen that, yeah.
1: Somebody at least should know the answer. And it is surprising okay. how often in family cases that is not so. I mean, let me give one example, a bugbear of mine. Uh, many uh, children cases... Uh, involve situations where there are parallel proceedings going on. For example, in the immigration tribunal, uh, a family, Mm -hmm. a child who is subject to both family law proceedings and also immigration proceedings. Now, those two things tend to go along separate tracks. The lawyers tend to operate in their own small professional silos. Um, Family lawyers don't know about immigration cases and vice versa. And I had endless experience as a judge asking a simple question. For example, when is the next hearing due to take place before the immigration tribunal? And nobody in court knew the answer. And that was because they hadn't thought to find out and it hadn't occurred to them that the judge might ask the question. And that sort of thing, quite apart from uh, impacting adversely upon your standing with the judge, uh, does not assist the smooth, efficient conduct of litigation.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, it's obvious really, but it's about making sure that they've thought about it. So preparation really is one of the crucial points.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there is nothing to beat really hard, detailed preparation, because if you prepare the case thoroughly, it's on your fingertips um, and you are, will be in a position Uh, to know what the answer is um, to even the most fast ball bolted at you by the judge.
0: I want to ask you about transparency in the family court, Mm. because I know you've been a very vocal advocate for this. And in the last 12 months, we have seen a lot more about this in the press and on TV. Mm. I know that for some family law professionals, the issue of transparency in the family courts is not one that is even on their radar. For those listeners who fall in that category, could you explain why transparency is important in your opinion and what, if anything, those listeners can do to support transparency in the courts?
1: Well, fundamentally, transparency is important for two reasons. First of all, the courts are operating a public service, and the public has a right to know what is going on in the courts. The public has a right to know what judges, in particular, are doing. And related to that, transparency is important. It's the best means of holding to account public officials, whether judges, uh, local authority care workers, or whatever, uh, to make sure that if they are failing in their duties and responsibilities, that fact can be brought to public attention and steps taken uh, to remedy the situation. Um, so transparency fundamentally is important in the public interest, so the public can know uh, what is being done in their name and whether what is being done in their name is being properly done. And
0: is is transparency the? I mean. Is it the reporting of cases? Is it is it uh, blogging about it? Is it um, having transcripts, or is it any of those things? Is it all of those things? It's all people those sitting things. in the
1: hearings. It's all those things, um, and the attendance at court, whether physically or, or by remote link, of a newspaper reporter or a blogger, is very very important. Um, because the mere fact that an outsider is sitting in court, uh, either actually or metaphorically, watching what is going on and listening to what's going on, is itself an important tonic in making sure the system works properly. So all those things you mentioned are an important aspect of transparency. But it begins with the reporter or blogger being in court. Um, It includes... um, the publication of the judgment. It includes the uh, ability of the blogger or journalist to report uh, whether on the legal issues or the wider aspects of the matter. Uh, it includes all those matters.
0: And so what should we, the listeners of this podcast, be doing to support transparency in the court? Should well, we be putting ourselves forward to attend hearings and to blog about them, or should we be uh, in encouraging the publications of judgments?
1: Well, I think, um, firstly, the professions need to understand, and regrettably not everybody does understand, why transparency is so important and what it involves. Um, and I think that leads through to this, that in a particular case, uh, the lawyers involved need to recognize that there may be a journalist suddenly popping up, there may be a legal blogger suddenly popping up, and need to know what their position will be if that happens, uh, what it is they're going to ask the judge to do, and more importantly, why they want the judge to do that. The common experience at present is that when a journalist or a blogger Uh, Arrives in court uh, or uh, joins, uh, asks to join a remote hearing. The immediate reaction of too many of the lawyers involved is defensive, uh, to say this shouldn't happen, um, and to raise what turn out to be ill-founded, ill-thought-out, and um, ultimately wrong arguments as to why something which obviously should happen, should not happen. And that wastes a lot of time, wastes a lot of money. And I think behind all this, there is the need for legal professionals, particularly fan law professionals, to understand that the world of transparency has developed and is continuing to develop. And that the kind of uh, judicial reaction, the kind of answer, which you might have expected to get 10 years ago, <laughs> Is not necessarily the one you're going to, going to uh, get today. And uh, well, so, are
0: you thinking more? Court, more of the judges are open and uh, willing to consider the applications of bloggers and journalists to sit in on their hearings?
1: Oh, certainly. Well, I mean, the fact is that journalists—this is one of the problems. Journalists and bloggers have a legal right to attend, unless the judge, for good cause and in accordance with the rules, decides they should not. Mm. And that legal fact is not understood. So very often uh, the reaction of the parties say, well, why should this journalist be allowed to be here? when the simple answer is because PD, whatever it is, uh, says they can be here. Mm. Um, and um, I think in that sense, there's a lot of misunderstanding about this. And, uh, I think the fact is that judges are much more receptive to uh, all this, much more receptive to new kinds of journalists, freelance journalists, uh, legal bloggers as an important part of the system than they would have been five, let alone ten years ago. And I think this is one of those areas where the judges in many ways are ahead of the profession. And, of course, one needs to bear in mind that, um, and this particularly arises in care cases, but also in other kinds of cases. If a public authority uh, takes a thoroughly bad point and seeks unsuccessfully to exclude a freelance journalist or a legal blogger from proceedings, then one of the things which is going to be reported is the very fact that this left authority took this unprincipled mm. ignorant and essentially ineffective stance at wasting public money and holding things up so that um, um the the fact That's is- calling
0: them into account isn't it it's making clear that they their bad behaviour is broadcast out to yes. you know, the general public Indeed. they have to learn to behave within the court proceedings in a proper manner.
1: And uh, wise public authorities will recognize that that however unpleasant the justified criticism of them may be, they shouldn't heedlessly and needlessly um, uh, extend the ambit of criticism by resisting the irresistible, thereby exposing themselves not merely to the complaint that uh, you got it wrong, but you then sort of cover it up. Because as we all know, uh, often the cover-up is more damaging, or the attempted cover-up is more damaging than the original.
0: Is it a matter of of perhaps educating the family law professionals engaging in the court that this is not only necessary, but is... Not acceptable, and I'm trying not trying to say acceptable, but that it's it's normal and it it's it's common practice, and it should be happening, and therefore don't be surprised and don't fight it when it does happen.
1: Well, the, the answer is yes. Um, I would qualify it in two ways. First of all, the law in relation to all this is immensely and unnecessarily complicated. Okay. And the fact is that there are very few uh, family law professionals. Uh, whether judges, dare I say it, or, or practitioners who fully understand or fully to, uh, to grips with all the fine detail of this immensely complicated and as unnecessarily complicated set of rules. Um, and that is a major problem. I mean, the other qualification is this, uh, education is obviously important Uh, But we know from other contexts, other legal contexts, that uh, education of itself is not a panacea. Uh, Those who most need to be educated, the cynic would say, are those least willing to recognize that they need to be educated (laughs) and least uh, likely actually to accept the education. So certainly more education. Um, But don't, if one is realistic, uh, treat that as being a panacea.